This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1, a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Event Dynamic specializes in maximizing revenue and increasing attendance. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back. To give back to not only those individuals that want to get into this business, but for those individuals that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name, Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career path, what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week. I was initially drawn to this individual in my career as he was always dressed sharp and always in a suit and tie, which for anyone that knows me, knows I appreciate. After working with him for a few years, I saw how good he was at thinking outside the box and finding unique ways to grow revenue streams. I'm excited to have Michael Ford, the Chief Sales Officer of the Orlando Magic. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Travis. I appreciate you having me. And I should have known better. I, I should have suited up today. No. <laughs> you know, it's, I feel like it's my stick. And, you know, as we laughed before, uh, you know, I, would, I just need to make sure it still fits. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, buddy. A lot of time at home eating way too many uh, lunches and burritos at home. <laughs> well, well, Michael, you, you know, thanks again for being here. You've had a great sure. career, you know, specifically the last 16 years at the Orlando Magic. But I really want to start today's conversation prior to that. You know, I know many people, whether they be in the sports business or not, have thought about or have actually went out and started at a company and started, you know, started their own company a lot of times after working on the team side. And, and you kind of went about it the other way around. Um, you and your wife, Vivian, started player sports marketing and owned and operated that nine years prior to the magic. So tell us a little bit more about that company and your experience with it. Yeah. So it's interesting to your point is, uh, um, you know, usually once you've gotten a taste of the property side of the team side, you feel like you can, you can do your own thing. I, uh, I kind of backed my way into to working for a sports team. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into a later where my, my career started, but specifically with player sports marketing, we really started out as kind of a social club. Um, there was a kind of the post intramural experience of people wanting to continue to play sports, but with the object obviously of socializing and hanging out with people. And so 
we started a kind of a side hustle. I was fully employed at the time, and uh, nights and weekends were spent hustling to host basketball leagues, softball leagues, and, and whatnot, and realized that although it was fun to be around that individuals, um, you know, hanging out with each other and the social aspect of it, the real money was in the Smurf market or the kids market. So uh, as a parent, um, you know, I would do anything for my kids, as would most, and every parent thinks that they're the the, their kid's going to be the next LeBron James or Tom Brady, so they're willing to invest time, money, and resources. And there's a, a big cottage industry, as, as you know, with most uh, participatory sports events. They're run by volunteer boards, the local baseball club, the local soccer club, but they need those new streams to offset the cost of operating their league. And that's where player sports marketing fit in. So we would go into a, a volunteer board or a nonprofit soccer club or a basketball club or or baseball or whatever sport it was and ultimately operate an event for them or a tournament for them. And uh, it threw off thousands and thousands of dollars to operate these leagues, but they didn't necessarily now didn't have to roll up their sleeves and do it themselves. We brought a professional approach to it. So we secured the team referees. Uh, we operated the event. Um, they technically were the governing or sanctioning approved it and had to work through their governing bodies to get sanctioned and, Look, let's be honest, the sanctioning aspect of, of the Smurf market is really the insurance market. you got to get sanctioned so that if somebody gets hurt, they have insurance on it. And we operated that on behalf of these leagues. And at some points, we probably were running maybe as many as 50 events a year um, for a bunch of nonprofits throughout the state of Florida and throughout the southeast. So, so that's really how the business came about. And I was fortunate the side hustle became busy enough that it became a full-time gig. You know, I felt like I threw you a softball there when you, you met, used the term side hustle a couple times. We're obviously on 52 weeks of hustle, and, and obviously, you know, you're always a, a very hard worker. You're working a full-time job, started this quote-unquote side hustle, and, and you right. really took that thing. So what were some of your key learnings, you know, from that? Yeah, I always tell people there is a difference between own a com- owning a company and being self-employed. There's a huge difference. Um, As much as I thought I owned the company, I was self-employed. Even when I had four employees, I had an office overhead, I had rent, I had payroll, I had everything that went along with it. At the end of the day, I was self-employed because I ate what I killed. So I still had to go out there. I had to secure the event. I had to work with the nonprofits to secure the rights to host their event. We had to bring the teams in. We had to do all the work. And frankly, when I took vacation, there was no revenue stream coming in. We were only generating the money that I was out there hustling. and That money was paid to me, my family, but also to my employees. Um, whereas when you own a business, oftentimes the structure allows that the revenue streams are coming in from multiple areas and not just from the principal's work. So, so that was probably the biggest lesson I learned. Um, and I learned that as I tried to scale the business. So that was the second area that I learned was as I went from being self-employed and operating all these events, as I try to scale it and move into other markets, we had some negotiations with markets in Texas and the Carolinas to duplicate what we were doing. We found that uh, the skill set that I had probably was applicable for other people, but it was much harder to get it to up to scale to operate additional events or additional markets without losing money. And that was probably the tipping point where it was like, okay, either you need a lot of capital to stay invested in this for a period of time, or you've got to stay small and continue to be self-employed. And, uh, and then in and around that time when opportunity presented itself that I actually went in a different direction and, um, and went back to corporate America and my full-time hustle then became my side hustle. 
Right. Full circle. Correct. Correct. So, you know, we had talked about, it. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people and I'm sure a lot of listeners that, you know, Hey, one day, and, and I'm glad you hit on it. You know, that there's a big difference between owning a company and, you know, what, what advice would you give to our listeners that are thinking about, or that's in their roadmap of, Hey, I want to start my own company, you know, whether it be the positives or the areas that are like, Hey, it's not as good as it sounds. Yeah. And, and, um, so I'm going to do a huge fan of Gary Vee, right? He speaks to me, and I don't know if you follow Gary Vee or not and, and take him for, for what he's worth, but, but what I see the value in is he always says is, you know, you, you spend your daytime working for somebody else. Um, you spend the rest of your time working for yourself. So my advice, number one, is is if you're going to start, have the security of, of doing it as a side hustle. You go to work every day, do your job, and then find a way to figure out how do you drive that additional income. It gives you the ability to make mistakes and it gives you the ability to test things where you're not relying on it to pay your grocery bills or your rent. Um, secondly, um, which leads to when it becomes your full time, you've got to be capitalized. You've got to be able to say, okay, I need enough money to be able to sustain this business operation for probably 12 to 18 months at least um, so that you can fully give the business an opportunity to grow and bloom. Um, and the last advice I would give is outsource everything that you can it you don't be the accountant don't be the bookkeeper don't be the it person don't be the lead lease negotiator all the things that aren't the primary purpose of your business you fall in love with having your own office you fall in love with all the things that go along with it well there's plenty of people that can be your accountant can do your book can handle your payroll outsource it might cost you a few bucks but what you get back in time to actually focus on growing your business is is uh, is immense and so that would be probably the third mistake I made is, is I spent as much time being an accountant as I did in, in actually running my business. Makes sense. So great advice. And I think one of the, the things you hit on earlier is continue to invest in yourself, right? You've got your full-time gig. So regardless of whether you're going to open your own company a year from now or 20 years from now, you're certainly always investing in yourself. Yeah. And I would say the last thing, and, and a lot of people don't look at, but other entrepreneurs, and I've, I've worked with other people in other businesses and have invested in other businesses. The one question I always ask before I make that investment is, what's the exit strategy, right? So what is the plan? And you should have the plan in mind as to what is the exit strategy of the company? Are you selling it? Are you operating? Are you passing it down to your children? Like knowing the path to what the exit is um, and maybe the exit isn't maybe that's the path is is that there is no intention to exit the business that would be the other thing because i think the decisions you make to make you set up to become valuable enough to sell you would take a different path than if you're trying to be valuable enough to operate awesome makes sense so i'm sure after our listeners listen to this that they might be hitting you up on linkedin asking more questions so sure um but you know michael so let's go back to the start a bit you grew up in philadelphia Went to the University of Delaware. Take us back. What did you study in college? It's interesting. Um, I was a failed physical therapy major. Um, so I came out, and uh, I'm a little bit more seasoned than you, Travis. Um, that's code word for old. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was at the time when there wasn't sports medicine. Um, I was an athlete. Um, I was an aspiring college athlete in high school. I was being recruited for soccer. Um, I had an injury that required rehabilitation, um, and I was fortunate enough to go come across a, a rehab facility called Sports PT, which was operated by a gentleman by the name of Pat Croce, to who this day I still consider a mentor. Pat actually opened a series of 
therapy centers, which I eventually worked for, so I'll, I'll get to that part of the story. But I was treated as a patient, but it was treated almost like an athlete. So back then, you know, you had your athletes that were working for professional teams were treated differently than, than the average Joe. Well, he took that approach to everyone. So as an athlete, I was able to be rehabilitated and work through a sports medicine clinic that was very new at the time. And that really inspired me to want to be in that industry. Um, so as I, I looked at that, um, I went to the University of Delaware. I had a soccer scholarship, and, and I was in the physical therapy program. Um, as an 18-year-old freshman away from home for the first time, uh, we, 100 students were admitted into the program, but the lab positions only had 30. So at the end of the second year, they took the top 30 students. Um, I was a really good college um, drinker. <laughs> Uh, but not necessarily the best college students. So, so you were at 31. Yes. Well, <laughs> they didn't count after 30. So yes. You and I. <laughs> um, so then I uh, I was afforded the opportunity to uh, to sh- switch my major and I moved over to exercise physiology, which was very close to physical therapy, but the approach was a little bit more about um, the conditioning and preparing an athlete, less about the the rehabilitation of an injured athlete. So that's that's really where I got my start. Um, you know, from a college point of view and, and which ultimately led to the start of my career in that industry. Yeah. So, so post-college, you know, and you mentioned a couple of times you were in kind of the, the real world or the corporate world. What did that look like for you? What were you doing? What kind of experience were you earning and gaining? Yeah. So I came out as an exercise physiologist and, you know, here I am, you know, some decades later, not even close to that industry. Um, and I actually work with rehabilitation with patients. So I, you know, my nine to five was working in a clinic, uh, here in Orlando, Florida, where we took care of everybody from knee replacements to strained backs to workers comp injuries. Um, and again, we were very progressive in regards to conditioning and weight training and all the other things to, to bring injuries back. Um, I was fortunate enough that at the time the Orlando magic came to town and prior 30 years ago, there were no strength coaches. There were no uh, athletic trainers or physical therapists on staff. There was an equipment manager and a full-time athletic trainer that took care of the team. So when players got hurt, they were sent to us, our company or our clinic. And so I dealt with all the original Magic team. I did all the rehabilitation. I did all their summer conditioning programs, but it was an outsourced company. Um, and that's really where, um, you know, I made a transition at that point, as great as it was in the opportunity to work with professional athletes, you would think as an exercise physiologist, I was at the, the top of the, the, the mountain at 23 years old, but I really wasn't satisfied and I realized that I enjoyed it, um, but it wasn't what I wanted to do for a living. Um, so um, another life lesson I learned, I went to my boss at the time, Pat Croach, and I said, Pat, like, I'm just not really feeling this. Have any ideas about, you know, what I should be doing, you know, to, to further my career? He goes, Mike, that's your problem, not my problem. And, he, and in a loving way, he basically said, like, come to me with a solution, not with a problem. And that to this day, I still have a, uh, when I have my office uh, back when we're, we're out of quarantine, I have, you know, a quote that basically says, come to me with solutions, not problems. And so um, I came back with a proposal to basically be a, uh, out on the streets soliciting business on behalf of the therapy center. And it was at the start of managed care and health insurance. And so I spent the next uh, several years working in that industry as a business person soliciting business, uh, which ultimately led to me overseeing 70 therapy centers up and down the East Coast. So again, kind of that entrepreneur mindset. Yeah, it was a little bit again. I and and look, 
don't get me wrong, it wasn't an easy transition because the other caveat that he said is I'll let you test this theory of yours that you think you can build a business model to help support my business, but I can't afford you not to be treating patients. So I would wake up, um, I would go to the office, I would treat patients from nine to noon. I'd go into the locker room at noon, throw a suit on. From noon to three, I'd go hustle the streets and look for new business. And then I come back and finish my shift and work from three to eight to close out my eight hour shift as a paid therapist. Um, and I did that for a month with the hope that it would be recognized not only for the hustle, but for the accomplishments. And um, about three weeks into that process, he pulled me aside and said, yeah, you've, you've not only proven yourself, you've proven that we have a need in this area. You can put the, the gym clothes away and start wearing a suit every day and go solicit business. Here's your thing. So that's great. I mean, to your point, that's the hustle. That's the hustle. Yep. So, so Michael, obviously, you know, early on had an entrepreneur mindset. We've already talked about the player sports marketing. You really kind of created that, you know, branch of the company as well. And then you fast forward to 2004, you decided to join the Orlando Magic as a partnership development manager. You know, why was that the right move for you? And then getting into that sports end of things in the in the sales and the business side. Yeah, and so, you know, life oftentimes dictates the directions you go. Um, and for me, I was at a crossroads. As we talked earlier, we were self-employed, didn't own a business. I had already tested the ability to scale. Um, I was afforded the luxury of spending nine years of working on that business that allowed me to watch my kids grow up, spend time with them, uh, come and go and be available to them as they needed and go on the field trips and the sporting events and all the other things. But they were quickly approaching college age uh, or started to evaluate college. And my wife, uh, who had supported me through the process, pulled me aside and said, okay, enough's enough. Either we're going to go all in and you're going to scale this thing or you're going to go back to corporate America. Um, and for my kids' sake, I went back to corporate America. Um, I went to work and uh, ironically, and around that time, I got call from one of my old mentors at the magic who uh, we had worked with when we were working on the, the athlete side and said, you know, I know that you're now operating your own shop and you're generating a lot of income from sponsors and partners and advertisers. We would love for you to come back and, and, you know, work in that department. Um, mind you, I was a little bit more seasoned than most. I had been through um, two careers at this point and, uh, I jumped at the chance and I always tell people I came to work for the magic, not for what they paid me, but what I thought I could earn. Um, you know, I took a significant reduction in pay. The, the plus side, I had the security of what I was making every day and I didn't have to worry about, you know, the strength of the business. And we kept the business. To be honest with you, we downsized the business. My wife continued to operate it for a number of years. And that again became our side hustle and provided us some additional income while I went back to work full time with corporate America. Nice. That's awesome. And so you end up, you know, to your point, you're still at the Orlando Magic, and we'll talk about your career path, but you end up continuing working your way up through the corporate partnerships route. And, you know, I guess, obviously, you mentioned it's kind of your third career move, but why do you feel like you were so successful and continued to grow your career? Um, I've always approached things with the uh, long-term vision in mind. There's a quote that I've always, always remembered, which basically says, when you establish the goals, uh, if you were to establish a goal, everybody does it New Year's Day. These are my goals for the year. You're one year. You overstate what you're capable of achieving in a year. But if you were to establish five-year goals, often most people understate what they're able to keep capable of achieving in five years. So uh, your goals are a little bit you know, more audacious on, in year one, but not aggressive enough in five years. So I've always looked at it to say, what, where will I be? And I use 36 months as my window. Where will I be 36 months from now? And that's always been my measuring stick. I feel like it's far enough out that a lot can get done, but it's not so far out that it's unattainable. 
So as I went into corporate partnerships, as I shared, I went for what I thought I could earn and not what I was actually being offered to be paid. And so I hadn't committed to a 36 month window to say, okay, this is where I want to be over these 36 months. And I took a very um, strategic approach to not live and die. And as salespeople, you know that as well as anybody else. Don't get too high on your wins and you don't get too low on your losses. And so I always believe that, you know, where I could be in 36 months that I would give myself an honest chance for 36 months to get to where I wanted to be. And, and I was fortunate. I'll tell you a quick story. My first sale. So I'm, I'm a little bit more senior, probably maybe five years older than most of the other people in the department when they hired me. Um, I spent nine months chasing deals in corporate partnerships and I got my first deal towards the end of the first season. And it was for a whopping $18,000 and a pool table and trade. Now, my pool table wasn't for me. Uh, we, it was with a billiards company and we were doing some renovations at our building and we wanted to upgrade one of our club areas. And so they paid us $18,000 in cash for the sponsorship and, and paid us in, in uh, actually I think it was two pool tables that we were able to sit space in the club. And that was, you know, and, and that was after eight or nine months. And I'm thinking, my goodness, my, you know, my first deal took me eight to nine months and it's $18,000 on a pool table. Well, fast forward a year later, and I did $1.5 million the following year. People say, well, you know, what what changed between year one and year two? And I tell them, nothing changed. Time. All the seeds I had planted when I started the job just took time to, to actually develop. And, you know, just because I wanted to sell them doesn't mean they were ready to buy. And you had to plant that seed, and you kind of had the long run. And, you know, I tell a story. I did a deal with a company called Metro PCS, and it was a – deal that basically was was close to seven figures um, and it got done in less than 10 days. And people are like, well, that's unbelievable. How do you get a deal done in 10 days? And I have to remind them, no, the deal got done basically over three years because the 10 days was the time from when I picked up the phone and they both parties were ready to have a serious conversation until we actually got to the contract. But it was the monthly lunches that I had with the marketing person for two and a half, almost three years that prepared me be able to react to that opportunity. So I always tell people it's, you got to play the long game, plant the seeds and then allow them to grow and be consistent with your approach. Yeah. And I think it's great advice. You know, that's what we've always talked about in this business. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? It's, you know, it's not the person that makes the first sale. Cause if people would look at you and say, he's been here nine months, he brought in 18 grand and two billiards tables. Like he's not going to make it. Right. right. Forward, now you're the top seller at a million and a half bucks. Like, yeah, it's a marathon. You're putting that legwork in, and that's what we've always talked about. I don't want to go down the, the line of COVID-19 right now, but everybody needs to invest in themselves. They need to put, put a plan in place so when this thing turns, they're going to be extremely successful. Absolutely. So, you know, now, and, and i got to be honest, I wish uh, I could do this in my, in my head, but I wasn't a math major. So you kind of mentioned 36 months. Well, Fast forward now, you're actually at 192 months. Uh, wow, that's good math. Of, of 16 years. So I'll, I'll be honest, I, uh, I pulled my phone out and uh, <laughs> did the quick math. You know, now the people that are just listening to the podcast wouldn't have seen it. People watching on YouTube are like, all right, he's on his phone right now. Yeah, uh, exactly. But so, you know, Mike, you've had eight roles with the Magic in 16 years. And, you know, that's in this business, as we know, a lot of people are, are moving around. And I know teams have been knocking on your door constantly. What has made you stay within the Magic organization, and how did you figure out some of your other roles just weren't the right fit? I'll go back to the 36 months. <laughs> you know, it's the belief that I view things to say, if I took this other job versus stay where I'm at, where would where would I be 36 months from now? 
So the immediate answer may be maybe I get a career move that gives me a better title, more pay, more opportunity, more influence, whatever is important to me at the time. But could I achieve those same things if I were to stay here? And there's a certain amount of certainty that I know here because I know our ownership group, I know our leadership group. Um, frankly, early on, when you have kids in, in middle school and high school, you know, it goes beyond just yourself. It's now for your family. So those were probably the early on pressures is to say, do I want to uproot my kids to the unknown uh, to chase a title or a job? And then on the flip side now, probably we've been here long enough, almost 30 years, that my wife is very comfortable in, in Florida. And we've had a couple of discussions, and it's always been, yeah, you can do that for five years, but we're coming back to Florida. So, you know, I will tell you candidly that those opportunities to say, can I get to where I want to be and have the title, the, the opportunity, if I stay here and work towards that as a goal over the next 36 months? And if the answer is yes, well, now 36 months from now, I'm in the equal footing but I've had to uproot my family and start my life over again. It's not necessarily the wrong thing. You just have to make the decision, you know, at what time and what place in life is that important. Yeah. You got to prioritize, right? What's more important on the personal and professional side. And you really have that, that balanced out columns. Yeah. I I give you an example with my two, uh, three adult children, uh, two boys. And um, as I've given my boys advice, who both moved out of the state and and are on on the West coast now or, or further West, um, I've always said to them, and as I mentor younger employees as well, I always say, as you're looking at the job market, what's more important to you, your job and what you do or where you live? And there's no absolutes, right? It's it's not 100%. It's all about the job. Or it's 100% about where I live. But when you narrow it down and say, well, here's your dream job, but it's in Sioux City, Iowa. No offense to anybody in Sioux City, Iowa last night, uh, listening to this, but the reality is, is you don't know the market and it's not a market that you would want to live in. Well, then it's not all about the on the flip side, you know, you can stay in whatever that dream city you want to live in, but the job is not something that would be appealing to you or you're still taking it. And and everyone's got their own barometer to that. And that's how I've measured myself to say, okay, you know, it's it's a balance between, you know, where I live and, and enjoy the experience as well as, you know, what drives my passion, you know, during the day for my job. Have you ever heard of DealDash.com? It's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things you'd never expect. At a price you'd never believe. They have over a 1,000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at zero and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that the auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, everyone else has 10 seconds to answer or the item is yours. Call to action right now. If you go ahead and buy now, DealDash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign up on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use the offer code HUSTLE or DealDash.FM backslash HUSTLE. That's DealDash.FM backslash HUSTLE. Sports are coming back and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. Major League Baseball is finally kicking off this week, and there's no better place to start wagering than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on, all available 24-7. And with the return of sports, Bet Online sat down with former players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Ory. See what they had to say on what it will be like playing without fans in a series they're called Fandemic. Visit betonline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. 
That's promo code BLUEWIRE. So again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Michael Ford, the Chief Sales Officer of the Orlando Magic. Well, Michael, you, you, you worked your way up in those eight roles to now the Chief Sales Officer where you oversee corporate sales, premium sales, ticketing, retail. You also provide strategic support for the Orlando Solar Bears, Lakeland Magic, Magic Gaming, Sports and Entertainment District. I'm running out of breath. Um, but, you know, first, I guess, can you give the listeners, what does your day-to-day look like? Interesting. Um, I believe that one of it is, is you have good, strong people that work for you, and they're in the they're in the trenches and operating the business on a day to day basis. I believe my job is to clear the path for them, and I like, you know, in in all honesty, and I do this with new employees. I tell them I work for you. I don't make any sales anymore, right? I I lead the sales team, but you know, there's rare occasions where I'm in the negotiations of the conversations. Obviously, some of the bigger deals, but. You know, I'm not picking up the phone selling season tickets to, to a customer. Like, that's what the team is doing. So my job is to drive the strategy, uh, to draw, provide them the resources, and, and to, to ultimately build the culture that leads to success. Part of that for me starts with routine and discipline. Um, so I'm a very disciplined person, and although my routine has changed because of COVID and working from home, the discipline hasn't. So um, when I'm at work, I'm at work, and I'm not half in or half out, and I believe that my day starts out with I'm a much happier person and my, my staff and my wife will tell you if I don't get my daily workouts in, uh, you know, that, that energy that I get and that's frankly solitude of being able to work out. And for me, I'm a morning guy. So it's, you know, up at six working out, you know, six thirty and, you know, on the emails for that first hour before I have to talk to you. So uh, a couple of coffees in and some workouts and then I'm doing emails and then, Honestly, it's meetings upon meetings. And so um, managing um, and uh, working towards saying no, that you don't have to be involved in everything is important, um, and giving your staff the ability to, to shine and grow by doing that. And then for me, I try to carve out at least one day or if not three quarters of a day with no meeting. So it's completely an open calendar. Uh, it's that it's that uh, white calendar or white paper time where there's nothing that I'm obligated to do that gives me an opportunity to check in with employees, with staff, with customers, but also gives me an opportunity to just have uninterrupted time to focus on projects. Yeah, so let's talk about a little bit about that briefly. Like, so you, you mentioned like meeting after meeting and in this business and really in life, we always talk about being efficient uh, and effective. You have a lot of responsibility, you have a lot of verticals, like with so many different initiatives, how are you prior, prioritizing your day? First of all, there's, I don't take very many meetings that there's not a predetermined expectation of the meeting and an agenda. So if you're meeting with me, I usually ask an agenda sent in advance so that we're in the meeting discussing it and making decisions and not just talking about what we were going to talk about. So that's part of the efficiency side of it. Um, the prioritization really comes down to a couple things. I, I've grown comfortable with having unopened emails, and that wasn't always the case. I were to go into my email right now, I probably have 350 unread emails. No, what it's probably a little bit of a misnomer. They're not unread. They're just not completely handled. So I may read the subject line, delete, get to later, or deal with now. So they fall into those three buckets. But I've grown comfortable knowing that uh, not everything. And then I start each week on either a Sunday night or a Monday morning to say, what are my priorities for the week? What needs to get accomplished? And then work towards those. Everything else in between is what I call flow. It's the normal emails, phone calls, conversations that you need to have in the normal flow of your day. And you have to make sure you don't become a slave 
uh, or beholden to those flows where all of a sudden now, why all of a sudden, just because you sent me an email, do I have to interrupt everything I'm doing to answer your email? The answer is I don't. And so I think oftentimes people feel like they're productive by responding to emails, but sometimes they're responding to emails because it's the lowest threshold of them having to respond back to something. Whereas the easiest thing or the hardest thing oftentimes is take on the bigger projects or, or the more difficult decisions. Right. You mentioned, Michael, like, and that's what I always appreciate you when I worked with you is that, you know, as much as your role is to talk is to think and, and actually proactively plan the 30,000 feet view. I always appreciate you being willing to have one-on-ones with every team member from an intern up to, you know, a VP and everybody in between. And, you know, at times you're overseeing a hundred plus people, why is it important to you to be open to those individual one-on-ones and those individual meetings? To me, it's one is, uh, again, going back to I, I don't make the sales. My team does. And so my ability to inspire um, and, and drive those individuals is important. Uh, two is uh, it's a pay-it-forward mentality. I, I didn't end up in my chair without other people helping me along the way. I'm a big believer in in networking and developing relationships outside of your core competencies because it gives you a more worldly and, and wide view. Um, so I've always felt like if there's a young employee or an intern or student that's courageous enough to reach out to to me with my title and you know and, and that's all it is is a title. I actually had one today that um, I sat in on the DeVos uh, Sports Management Program did a presentation that. I was part of a panel. He was smart enough to reach out and say, thank you for attending the panel. I would love 10 minutes of your time. Who am I to say no? So I, anybody that's willing to ask for 10 minutes, I'm willing to give them 10 minutes. Now, there's a couple caveats to that. One is, is when I meet with them, um, you know, I'm going to give them that. I'm going to give them the 10 minutes. And I always tell them that now you've, you've opened the door with me. It's up to you to walk through and do something with it. Um, the last reason I do that, Travis, is um, oftentimes you don't get the view of the front line. And some of the best ideas come from the people that are actually living and breathing it every day. So some of the biggest changes we've made have been because we've, I've had a dialogue with a customer, I'm sorry, an employee about a customer situation, about a work situation that I wasn't aware of and just didn't have insight to. And sometimes the layers that um, you know, let's be honest, sometimes you're, you're managed by your employees. Yeah. Um, so being able to get, go directly to the front line, you oftentimes cut through all of that and you kind of see where the challenges and, and the warts are. So you have an ability to direct. So selfishly for me, it gives me a, a better prism into what's going on. Yeah. Which is only going to help as you build out proactive plans and, you know, the future. And I think some of the things I've taken away is, you know, the listeners that are leaders, you know, you know listening to 52 weeks of hustle is, prioritize your schedule. I love the idea of, hey, send me an agenda prior so we can get in. And too many meetings are just kind of, you sit around and talk for 20 minutes and then next thing you know, you actually talk business for 10. Um, But then also it's like, you know, making sure that, you know, you are getting something out of each and every one of those meetings. Um, And I think for the team members that are listening, like going in, I love your door analogy, right? Now you've opened the door. That's why we always tell people, right? It's like, don't, don't talk to me now. And then you don't talk to me again for eight months until you need a job, right? Right. It's hard to help you at that point. So, well, good. And and so, you know, I guess to kind of close that part out, you've seen a lot of successful sales professionals, both in the corporate world, the premium world, the ticketing space. So in your opinion, what are some characteristics that the elite ones continue to bring to the table each and every day? 
So I think the biggest thing that I've seen in successful salespeople is they know who they are. They have a strong sense of self. They know what they stand for. They know what principles they're working with. It's like they, it's not, they, they very much believe in whatever their why is, right? And their why could be money. Their why could be having, you know, the ability to vacation and travel. It could be, you know, their spouse or their family, but having that strong sense of why and that it truly is a career or an opportunity and just not a job. Um, so I think that I see is one. I think two is, is that they have the customer's perspective in mind, not to the, to the extent of not having their boss or their employer's uh, needs in mind, but they are empathetic to what the needs of the customer is, right? So if it's on tickets, like, you know, I'm not selling you a product. I, one of my favorite analogies is, you know, there's, there's millions of quarter-inch drill bits sold in the world every year. Nobody wants a drill bit. What do they want? They want the whole. So similarly, like nobody wants the real estate of a, of a, of a seat at a sporting event. They want the experience, whether that's time with kids, the passion they have for a team. So to me, it's always building value for the customer. Um, people that sell solutions and not assets, right? So that's another area that regardless of what business or what, what you're selling, you have to provide a solution because if you don't have the solution, then, then why would they use your product or, or your service? And then lastly, I'm, I'm a big believer in the challenger salesperson. So if you're familiar with the Harvard Business Review, that salesperson, that's not just willing to say yes to the customer to keep them happy, but is willing to challenge that customer and get them out of their comfort zone to say, because frankly, if, if they're just doing the same old, same old, then what, what purpose do you serve or what product, what the purpose did your product? You got to challenge them to say, hey, you've been doing this for this long. Why not try it this way? And, and I, again, I find the most successful people have that challenge. Love it. Th- thanks for the advice. And you know, we've talked about a lot of different things from you know efficiency and prioritization, but another key component of our business is is always being innovative. And I think you've really shown that in your career, from you know having innovative key partners when Amway Center opened up, uh, to the Jersey patch, to you know the shock and alls. I remember when the apron patch and sell the apron and the mini basketball courts that you sent. Right. As far as the shock and all, you've always been innovative on that. So. Um, and even on the ticketing end, you know, starting and, and walking potential customers through a timeshare, you know, sales approach. So why is innovation important to you? And, and ultimately, why does it help you and your team be successful? Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, the history books are full of industries and companies that did not innovate and they have gone out of business. And, you know, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, because of the COVID situation, um, a lot of companies and individuals' weaknesses have been magnified in this crisis. And if you look at the number of bankruptcies are out there, I think history will go and say, like, COVID may have been the the end of the process for them and ultimately what sent them into bankruptcy or failure, but it's probably systemic over the years before because they didn't adjust. Um, I can tell you, having started on the sports property side in the corporate world, what we do in corporate partnerships today, I'm selling assets around, you know, social media, and Twitter and Instagram and uh, and Facebook, those products didn't exist five and 10 years ago when I started in the industry. Um, you know, it used to be spots and dots where you sold signs and TV commercials and, and nobody wants those anymore. Like, so you have to evolve and you're either going to be part of the evolution and drive the change or you're going to be playing, playing catch up as others drive the change. And tickets is the same way. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that you used to be able to buy two types of tickets either stood in line outside at the box office on the day the tickets went on sale to buy the individual game you wanted to, you wanted to, to buy, 
or you bought season tickets. Those were the only two options that teams offered. Um, and then evolved to halves and partials and things like that. And now we've really flipped it when the uh, technologies introduced StubHub and SeatGeeks and second uh, secondary markets now the teams no longer dictate the terms of how a ticket is sold. The public is not dictating how a ticket is sold. So, again, that's an example, I think, where understanding that you have to evolve to what the commercial marketplace is looking for. If you don't evolve, you will ultimately, it's a, what's the saying, you either grow or, or you go. And so in this case, we have to grow. So it's always been part of our discussion process. And, and you also have to have good support from your organization to allow you to test and fail. Because in some cases, you know, the, the best of ideas look good on the whiteboard, but when they actually go out to the public, it, they don't work. Right. But it's, I think the key to it is just be innovative in everything you do. You know, whether it's making an outbound call or putting together, you know, as leaders are putting together a campaign and lead sourcing, just be innovative. Well, and, I, and I'll give you an example. And oftentimes innovation is oftentimes people think of technology and, and doing something new. Also, what is old is new again. Um, we've had a huge amount of success. Um, I have one rep in particular that I said, you know, I suggested to her, why don't you try something different? She was a little bit of a slump. I'm like, instead of sending emails to everyone, send letters. Yes, it's going to take you longer. Yes, it's a little bit more. And her her engagement rate was like 80%. And the reason was is because it was personal. It was handwritten. It wasn't a, a uh, you know, computer formatted letter. And not every sale went through, but her level of engagement went through the roof because it was different. It was something that people aren't getting business letters. And uh, it used to be the old, if you want to get someone's attention, send them a FedEx because when was the last time a FedEx arrived at your door, they didn't open immediately. So sometimes innovation isn't necessarily evolving into something new, but sometimes rethinking something you did, you know, old. Right. Do something different. You know, I've always talked about that. I've always been a big proponent of handwritten cards and you know even now with everything going on you think about it right now the amount of sales emails or linkedin emails you're getting but when you get back to that office there's probably very few handwritten cards you've gotten and uh, you're received so it may separate and differentiate yourself and so you know i guess you know as, as we think about this and you know going back to a little bit being efficient you know, Michael, you also find time to not only be a dad, to your point, you have three kids, you have three grandchildren, you also serve on the board of the Florida Sports Foundation, formerly served as the chairman of the board of the Central Florida Sports Commission. So how do you balance that crazy thing that we call kind of work-life balance? You know, um, and, and, and I thought about this and, you know, as, as in preparation for today and, and what I realized, it isn't work-life balance, it's just life. Like in simplest of terms, it's just life. Um, I'm not, I, I try to be present where I am, and I, I instill that in my staff. Wherever you are, be. Um, if I'm at home, I'm at home. I'm, I'm tuned into my wife. I'm tuned into whatever's going on with my kids are at home. And even as they were growing up, they were always my priority. So if I had to leave the office at 4 o'clock to catch a freshman basketball game, I would do that knowing that I would tell my wife that sacrifice on the back end is, I'm not coming home for dinner. I'm going back to the office to pick up for the hour and a half. I was because the priority was being there for my kids' basketball game, not, you know, something else. Yep. So to me, that's life, right? So you adjust according to what life and the circumstances are. And I've always been afforded the opportunity to have that flexibility. Um, and I'm a big believer in, in measuring against results and not activity. And so, again, as I look at the things that I participate in, it's because I have passion for them or I have belief in them. Um, you know, the boards that I serve on or have a passion point for me. So 
historically it was Boys and Girls Club. Now some of these sports foundations, it's easy for me to be part of those things because I have a passion for it. And selfishly, they have an impact on my business. You know, being involved in the two sports commissions, both at the local and the state level, have a meaningful impact on Orlando Magic's business, and that's why it's easy to spend time there. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and that's it. You know, I certainly always appreciate you. It's, it's all about results, right? It's so you can prioritize your day. There is no such thing necessarily as a work-life balance, but just get it done. You know, Correct. And so and I think the next generation sees that, right? So I, I look at my kids and they're, they're very comfortable and, you know, going skiing for a couple hours, getting off the slopes and then spending two hours working emails on a laptop at some lodge. And there are fortunate enough that they're, they don't have to be chained to an office and they're very successful. I, I don't have that discipline and capability, but that's what the next generation is looking for is the, the excitement and variability that I can do my job. I don't necessarily have to be sitting behind a desk to always do it. And I believe that depending on your industry, if you have that luxury, uh, your bosses care about what you produce, not necessarily about what you do. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly all about evolving. Well, Michael, this has been great. A lot of great insights. So to close it out, I like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for Uh-oh. this? I'll try. <laughs> All right. So, well, I have to ask, and then we started the conversation, you know, I think one of the, going back to when I was interviewing through Orlando Magic, I feel like to this day it was probably one of the hardest interview questions I ever had. Um, <laughs> was, I do remember. Where, where do you buy your suits? And I couldn't tell if you were joking with me, if you weren't. And certainly at that point in time, I hadn't got to the point of, of doing anything customized. So I was a little embarrassed, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to own it. I usually buy the buy one, get one at Joseph A. Banks. And it's, your response was like, okay, thanks for letting me know. Like you didn't, you didn't like bash me. You didn't like say that's great. It was just, it was just, uh, it was interesting. So, um, you know, again, I feel like after this, this question on the hustle hot seat, what is your favorite suit you wear? It's, it's I'm glad it's come full circle. I love interviewing candidates because, you know, your standard interview is just that. And I always try to throw a couple questions in that have no basis in the interview at all. There's no right or wrong answer. It's literally just to kind of throw people off and especially salespeople, you can see how they react. And you were great. You were quick to like own it. And, <laughs> and you know, you felt like your suit game was an important part of your personality. So I was, I was going to call you out on it. I will tell you, I don't even know who made it. Um, there is a tailor in New York City that um, I've gone to for years. Uh, it's right off of Fifth Avenue. I, I don't even remember the name, but I go in. Uh, I try to buy at least one new suit a year, and it's usually there. Um, okay. I may buy it at any point during the year. I will not wear my new suit until opening night. So it gets okay. introduced into the rotation of the wardrobe every opening night. Um, so that that's kind of my shtick, and... You know, I always treat myself to one new suit, if not more, but certainly one that I hold back for opening night. So if I if I ask your wife, Vivian would probably know the exact answer, but on your end, how many suits do you think you own? Um, well, I've got skinny Mike and, <laughs> and medium-sized Mike. Um, if I tend uh, – a couple get rotated out based on uh, fashion, but I'd say I'm in the 25 to 30 range right now. All right, good, good. Probably only about, right now in quarantine, maybe only about dozen fit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you work out every morning at six. Yeah, I guess so. We're trying. So you, you have to sing a, a karaoke song. What song okay. is the second? Do I have to sing it here or this? No, you don't have to sing it now. Maybe that's the next time around. But what song would you pick? Uh, it would have to be uh, My Way by Frank Sinatra. All right, nice, nice. 
I grew up uh, in a household where uh, in Philadelphia there was a radio station. It was Fridays with Frank and Sundays with Sinatra. My father had them on every Friday night and every Sunday morning. I could virtually sing word for word of just about any Frank song, but that's the one that probably speaks to me the most. So I think that's what you're going to get hit up on LinkedIn is people that want to pick your brain about owning a business and then like, all right, hey, what's your favorite Frank song? Can you sing it? You're going to be getting thrilled left and right. You know, I guess this might, you know, and I'm going to say with this question, you can't answer Frank Sinatra. Um, If you could choose two people to have dinner with, with dead or alive, you know, who would they be? All right. Um, this is funny because, you know, this is a type of question that may come up here and there throughout the process as you talk to people. Um, I'm going to go with what my current state of mind is. Uh, one is The Rock, right? I just find his backstory fascinating. I was not a wrestling fan, so I didn't I didn't experience The Rock until he became movie star Rock. But yep. um, him and Kevin Hart together just cracked me up. And I just, you know, how, how real he is to what he pushes out on social media. But I always appreciated his social media feels a genuine person and maybe I'm a little bit of a man crush on rock. So, so <laughs> yeah, one. So if he's tuning in, you can hit me up uh, rock. And then second one, and this one mate, a lot of people may not know. Um, I've really been spending a lot of time uh, following a gentleman by the name of Jesse Itzler. Um, are you familiar with Jesse at all? Travis? I am. Yep. Um, so tra- Jesse now owns part of the Hawks, but his history is, He's, uh, he's got a website and kind of a mono of build your life resume, and it's less about um, you build your life on experiences, you know, but he's got three or four kids. His wife is married, to, or he's married to the woman that invented Spanx. He himself was a, a rapper at a young age, and then he started a coconut water company that he sold, and then he started Marquee Jets that he sold. And his belief and what I really appreciate about him is his life is about experiences. So I'm currently pursuing um, trying to learn 50 new skills during my 50s. And that came yeah. from him where he believes, like, you should learn four new skills or have four new adventures every year. So I've been kind of following that. So so he would be one that I would love to spend time with. He was also wrote a book where he had a Navy SEAL move in with him, I think. For yeah, as I say, that, that's how I initially heard of him. And then talking to a lot of people at the Hawks, I know he's very involved in their organization. Yeah, so he'd be one that I would definitely wanted to have a beer with. That's quite the dinner table. So I guess I'll have to spin it off there. So, you know, what is one of those experiences, the, the 50 and 50? So I'll tell you, I, I've knocked out a couple. So I've uh, earlier in my 50s, so I'm 54 now, I, I did rock climbing. So I've learned how to rock climb. One of my sons is a rock climber. Okay. I've learned to ski. I've done a marathon. Um, and then during this uh, COVID work from home, I've learned three things, or I'm in the process. I've, so I've learned to wakeboard. So that, that's one new skill that I have the bruises to show for, but over the 12 weeks I've learned to wakeboard. Um, I'm currently taking Spanish lessons through Duolingo, which is Duolingo. a language. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm progressing on that one. And then the one I'm most excited about is I am uh, doing EDM DJing, electric dance music DJing, and everyone kind of like, what is a 54-year-old doing DJing? But I love EDM and I love that music and um, I've started watching YouTube videos. I've got my soundboard. I've got all the equipment now. My wife just completely thinks I've lost my mind. Um, but I, my goal is to to get one paid gig as a professional DJ mixing uh, music. So that's currently my passion that I'm chasing really hard and and literally you know doing about an hour a day of YouTube videos and practicing. 
Well, that's incredible. And you, you've talked about throughout the entire podcast side hustle. So you're continuing that side hustle going Yep, on. you never know. Nice. Well, you t- might t- see t- me at the next Electric Daisy Carnival uh, Festival out in Vegas or here in Orlando. You never know. I, I'm going to be there. VIP. Well, to close it out, what are three key takeaways you give every listener to be in your shoes one day? All right, so I, this one's a little bit easier. So I give a speech to all of our new employees. It's called 15 Things You Can Learn from an Old Guy in a Suit. And these are life lessons that I've kind of aggregated and, and put into a couple quick quips. So I'm going to give you three of them. The first one is be the best janitor you can be. And the point of that being is no matter what job you have, no job is beneath you, be the best at that job. Because too many people are too focused on proving to get to the next job that they're not focusing on being. The way you get your next job or your next career or your next raise is by being the best at your current job. So be the best janitor you can be. So that's number one. Number two is it's not that serious. People always feel like they take everything so serious in the moment. And I always say today's, you know, uh, catastrophe or, 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 uh, or problem is tomorrow's great story. So that moment when things are going and falling apart, it's a catastrophe and it's a crisis. It turns into the funny joke or the story that you're telling about later. So to me is don't take things that serious. And the last one uh, I learned from my father, and it only takes that much more to go first class. So whenever a doubt, don't, sh- don't uh, skimp on anything. Um, and unfortunately, my wife uses that back on me a few times. So- <laughs> I'm doing something around the house that isn't quite the way that she would expect it to be. She'll say, hey, it only takes that much more to go first class. And next thing you know, I'm redoing it to make it look perfect. So those would be my three takeaways. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you. You've had a great career. It's, it's always great talking to you. And I certainly really appreciate your time and expertise, giving a ton of great advice. And it's been a pleasure to have you on here. Appreciate it, Travis. Enjoyed spending the time with you. Well, again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Please be sure to follow the podcast and watch on YouTube. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, so follow us at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We will be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.